Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and really excited to speak with our guest today. We actually had him on our, on our podcast before, so always great to have these experts come back when they have new things in the pipeline and talk about things that are very important uh, in real time. And our guest today, we're going to talk about inequality in the educational system. Uh, this is going to be entitled, Our State School Test Racist. <laughs> and our yeah. guest, I I'm, I'm actually want to read the bio before I introduce the guest, because I think the bio needs to be speaking in its totality to get the impact of what we're going to cover this hour. So standardized testing is far worse than a necessary evil. The way the test data is interpreted can also harm the impoverished minority schools that need the most encouragement. So says our guest, he's a longtime educator, administrator in public schools and universities. He says that data from these tests is used to rank schools and school districts and label them. So no matter what minority impoverished schools achieve, they will almost always be labeled as failures because it is and always has been a ranking system. So we survived this spring, that's why we wanted to talk to our guest today, because of the pandemic. So we didn't uh, have the, the traditional trajectory of these ranking systems. So now is the time, since we're going through this flux, it's the time to devise a new system that encourages everyone. He just released his latest book, How to Create a Perfect School, and it also contains a forward by our favorite, Jack Canfield. So we're going to talk about a better way to gather data and create more perfect schools. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Lee Jenkins to the podcast. Welcome, Lee. Well, thank you, Hamza. This is it's a treat to be with you again. And uh, certainly the topic is uh, of utmost importance uh, because um, the, we, could, we continue to go down the same path, which uh, is harmful to so many of the schools. And, and so we'll talk through that. We've got lots to share with you on that, on that I, topic. I, I appreciate it. And the fact that we are in the middle of a pandemic, I, it made me think of how the business world has been upended. And every facet of life, you know, yes. has been upended. And everyone has, has, that follows the stock market knows the technology companies are booming. And as a result, it's kind of flattened the curve where people are questioning uh, these expensive schools, private schools and public schools, uh, is it worth it because it's all online now? What's going to happen with that? And by having you being in the trenches and all these, all these realms, I I'm just really happy to have you on. Well, thank you. You know, um, just talking about all the schools, the, the, the online education, um, people, we know that for the majority of kids, it's less effective. For some, it can it can be it can be um, more effective, um, but for the majority, it's not as effective. It's not the teachers don't feel as good about it, and and uh, neither do the students. But one of the things I have not seen at all, because of my work, it's unique in the education field. I've not met anybody else who advocates what I'm advocating, uh, which is that. In a classroom, what's, what's, when we document what a child has done, that information is in a data folder and it's personal. It's their, their own uh, progress. 
But what goes on the wall in the classroom is the total correct for the whole class. And even at four years old, when you put the total up for the whole class and you make a graph out of it, looking like any other graph, you want it to go up and up and up and up and up. It doesn't go up every week, but it goes up, oh, probably half of the weeks. But when you look at it over the whole year, you see a, a, a picture of joy that the kids have because they see themselves as a team. And so if, if you think of a classroom as a team of learners, as a, um, then you think, well, how in the world are we going to do online learning mm-hmm. and create a team of learners? Mm-hmm. Because they're not together. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, 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 and so it's like, but we don't think of it, we don't think of a classroom as a team. We think of it as a group of individual students, and it is that because every kid has a record of their own learning and is responsible for their own work. But there's tremendous joy that kids receive from helping the team do better. We know that in athletics, but we don't practice that in education. So that's one of the things we're really missing is the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the places where I've worked that are online, they, now they – they're frustrated because the kids aren't there and they don't have that team feeling of everybody helping everybody else in order to help the team. Now, that's an aside. It's not the topic that, that we're going to talk about. But it is data and it is connected to some extent and what we're going to talk about on state assessment. But that, as an aside, it, 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 the teams are gone. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when we talk about state assessments, and I want to do a macro and then do micro. So when we talk about state school tests, it makes me think of, to be topical, when we're talking about the crisis, this global pandemic that we're going through. And in the states, the higher-ups were, you know, looking at death numbers, and they said, well, uh, it would be really good if it wasn't this color state, you know, between red and blue. So the the country, if the country is divided on everyone's health, you know, how healthy or how, yeah, how healthily mentally can we be as a country when we're not in the top 25 of literacy rates for a first world country? Like, is this, do we need to approach this from a macro level and then go to the micro level? Well, we, we certainly need to, if we're going to look at it from a national level, and say, why are we not doing as well as we would expect to do compared to other countries? Mm-hmm. We have to say, well, what are the root causes of this problem? What, why, why is it that way? Mm-hmm. Um, and we, um, Dr. Deming, that I spent a lot of years listening to and learning from him, uh, he's the one that... Uh, actually took Japanese management to Japan. What he taught was a military secret during World War II. Uh, He's a statistician. But he said, when things go wrong in Japan, they ask why until they find out why. And when things go wrong in the United States, we ask why until we find a who. Mm -hmm. So we're not used to digging down to what are the root causes of this uh, uh, failure in education. And in my book, uh, How to Create a Perfect School, 
the second part of the book is identifying root causes. I've done mm-hmm. more work on it in, an, in another book, but there's, there's enough. So let's just look at it. What are the root causes of our failure? Number one, children have permission to forget everything that's taught. They know that they need to learn what's on this chapter test, and they need to be able to spit it out for Friday on the test, and, they, and then they forget it on Saturday. They know it's not coming up again. Um, so it, that it's, and it starts in first grade spelling, and it goes all the way through. There was an Internet message I received, talking, and it was the uh, graduation speech of, uh, of the valedictorian. Of course, when you get something on the Internet, it may not be right. But here's the speech that was proposed, uh, purported that the valedictorian gave. She stood up at graduation and said, um, Mom and Dad, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, because I'm up here as a valedictorian, you think I'm the smartest kid in this high school. But I'm not. You got it completely wrong. I'm not the smartest kid in this high school, but I'll tell you what I am. I am the very best kid in this high school at cramming. I can remember it overnight. Oh, can I remember it overnight? I spit it out the next day, and on Saturday I dump it all so that I have room to cram for the next test. Mm-hmm. I'm the very best at playing the game of anybody in this high school. Mm-hmm. But, and that sounds like, well, that may not be the true story that the valedictorian told, but it is true of what happens in schools that it is cram, get a grade, forget, cram, get a grade, forget. I was in the dermatologist's office for my annual exam. And the dermatologist said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I write books on education and I get on airplanes and I make presentations to administrators and teachers uh, for conferences. Well, what do you tell them? And, I, and, I went, and I, of course, when you're dermatology exam, you're sitting there in your underwear, and I was anxious to leave. And she kept pressing. Said, "Well, what do you teach them?" And I said, "Well, I teach them how we can we can make cramming impossible." And that's the third part of the book, by the way. How do you how do you make cramming impossible? We can do it. It's a system problem. And and she said, "You make cramming impossible?" I said, "Yes." Well, that's really interesting. She said, "That's what I did all the way through medical school. <laughs> Cram and forget." Mm-hmm. And I'm in the doctor's office, and I said. I'm thinking, huh, well, maybe I'm in the wrong office. And I said, well, well, yeah, well, when do you learn? She said, oh, that's what residency is for. So mm-hmm. think about that system. You can get scholarships. You can get honors. You can become a doctor because you're so good at cramming and forgetting. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's root cause number one. That, that is our system. Um, root cause uh, number two um, is that we, we use data for harm instead of data for joy. Mm-hmm. And data needs to be used for joy. We don't. And it goes back to the ranking you mentioned on the, on the, uh, for state tests, but it's, mm-hmm. not ranking, it's not ranking only for state tests. It's in the classrooms. Uh, I've got pictures of the bulletin boards, actual bulletin boards from classrooms. And a teacher went to a lot of work to make a bulletin board, a huge one, uh, probably eight foot by five foot to make it look like a football field. And then she made a helmet for every kid, big, bold letters for, for every kid on their helmet. 
And she thought she was going to motivate the kids to move their helmet across the field as they learned something. They moved, they moved from the zero-yard line to the 10 and learned again. They went to the 20 and on down the line. Well, when you look at it, you can see who the winners were, and then there's the losers. Five kids at the end hadn't made it to the one-yard line yet. Mm-hmm. So, and the problem is the kid, that, that, that bulletin board's in a second grade, but the first grade teacher had another kind of bulletin board, which wasn't a football field, but it was similar. And the kindergarten teacher had something else. Uh, the picture I have is gumball machines with, you know, the more you learn, the more you, the more you get to color your gumballs in, and, but it's posted for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. And, and so year after year, you're, the same kids being ranked as the loser over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use data for harm instead of data for joy. Uh, we give uh, permission to forget. And the third one is... Wait, we, before you go we, to the third one, I want to put a pen before I forget because I know you're on the stream of consciousness. Uh, but I, I want to ask, right, the first one you're talking about, permission to forget, and you're uh-huh. talking about the root cause. So, you know, schools are usually funded, especially in the public realm, based off of test scores. And usually, you know, the, the tenured teacher that's been there for 30-plus years Right, she probably used to do some of the things that you wanted to do or that you would like to do, but you know she kept getting the uh, the old school ruler slap on her hand because she wasn't raising the test scores. So it kind of takes out a lot of, or the argument is you take out the ingenuity because all year I'm teaching for the test. So how do you marry making cramming impossible versus these data points that teachers need to make? Okay. Um... In the, the last, when, next to the last chapter of the book, is a, uh, a chapter is devoted to one fifth grade teacher. Cody Arood is her name. She's mm-hmm. in South Sioux City, Nebraska. And so I said to her, I've been working with her about 12 years, and I said, Cody, when the state test came up, I know that the average uh, school spends six to eight weeks uh, practicing for the state test. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did you spend getting your kids ready for the state test? She, she uh, thought about it and she said, well, maybe five minutes, but I don't think I spent that long. Mm. So what's the difference? If you know that they've remembered what you taught instead of just remembering it for Friday, you don't need to spend time getting ready for the state test. It takes care of itself because they remember it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then... For many, many, many teachers, there's, because there's such pressure for the state, state test scores, mm. which are given, say, in March or April. Let's say they're given in the middle of April. And, and there's such pressure to get those test scores up. So the kids are exhausted, the teachers are exhausted, and the take test, take test is over. And what does the teacher say? Oh, thank goodness the test is over. Now we can have fun the rest of the year. Mm-hmm which means we're not going to spend much attention on learning. <laughs> so we wasted six weeks getting ready for the test, you know, cramming it again. And then when it's over, we got another six weeks before school's out, and we're not going to teach them a whole lot because huh, we're so exhausted from all that state test. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not a lot. So, so that's, a, that's a common scenario. So when I talk about there's root causes why our country is not doing as well. Mm-hmm. But we don't look for root causes. We look for blame. Mm-hmm. We want, it depends on who you are. 
if you're an education, if you're a teacher, you may blame the teachers and the administrators. The, I mean, if you're a teacher, you may blame the administrators and the parents. Mm-hmm. If you're a parent, you blame the teachers. Okay? If you're a school board member, you may blame the principals. Okay? But it's not getting to what the actual problem is. Mm-hmm. Okay? Let, me, let me ask you this about you, you had dedicated to that teacher in Nebraska. And as I look or prepared for the podcast, I was looking at, I love graphs, right, in the, in the business world. And when you look at the literacy rate across the country, it seems that it's a historic image. Like I could pull it up for an image that was created in 2019 since they haven't done anything for 2020 yet. And I could look at the, I can superimpose that over a map in 1915, 1920, let's just do 100 years, and it would be identical. And what happens, it seems like there's these really strong spots in the Northeast and then on the West Coast, and the South has all historically been down in the dump. So I want to get uh-huh. your take on the root causes from a national level and why is it that some regions are performing better than others? You know, I don't know that I know all of those reasons. Um, I um, I do believe that money has something to do with it. Okay, mm-hmm. that the the, mo- the money put into education, and it's not because the teachers make more money. Because if the teachers make more money, they're probably in a community where the housing is more expensive. Mm-hmm. So the, the leftover money for the teacher to, to plan for retirement and go on vacations is probably no different in any part of the country. Because if we just compare salary to salary, that does no good. You have to say compare salary to housing costs and then say, you know, and then do a comparison. But in places where they've funded education better, what I see is, uh, the, in, in particularly in the elementary, I see the art teachers I see the music teachers, I see the PE teachers, the technology. Um, I see uh, uh, in the high schools a, a, a much more of a focus on the arts than other schools can afford. Um, and I think that's a part of it, that it's such a well-rounded education. My career was in California. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in several school districts. I never met an elementary uh, art teacher or an elementary music teacher um, mm-hmm. the time I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that funny, money has something to do with it, but I'm not going to say that's all that has to do with it. Okay. Well, let, let me ask it in another way. So let's just use uh, California, let's, where you were. And I mentioned historically I did 100 years, but let's go back a little bit farther. So if I look at the Civil War, right, the way we learned it in school, it was the North versus South. And then when uh-huh. we fast forward today in education, it looks like in the, every city, in the northern side of the city, they have more funding versus the South. And it seems unilateral across – I mean, there's going to be some exceptions. But did you see the disparity on the city level from funding? Yes, um, I have uh, basically observed that the inner city schools are not usually funded as well as the suburban schools. Mm-hmm. I never looked at a north and south of the, of, the, of, the, of the core of the city. 
mm-hmm. I've just looked at it um, from the funding, the funding level. Right. Because um, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking, you know, yesterday was, and it's so hard for me. I know that some people that listen to the podcast are sports fans like I am. And it's just really, I mean, it's a new, I mean, this year is unprecedented for the most part. Yes. Outside of 1918. But this year, it's hard for me to watch the NBA just because it's football season. But nonetheless, yes. as it relates to this conversation, uh, you have the L.A. Lakers, which is LeBron. And traditionally, for people like LeBron and others, if they're in the inner city, but they have this raw talent, then from an athletic standpoint, the a- athletic school uh, administrators, if you will, the coaches, come to the inner city, and then they take those kids out of those schools to go to the northern schools because that's where, like you said, the funding is. If they get state champs uh-huh. and what have you, the boosting, boosters, they get a lot of money. Um, I'm just asking when you're talking about state school tests, it just seems on the surface everybody knows there's disparity and how can we bridge those gaps because there seems like they're well-grained into keeping it the way it is. Yeah, and, and I know that there's people that are – their focus is the disparity. Um, I, I'm not discounting the disparity. I'm just um, – I'm not convinced that, that we can't all do better. I'd like mm-hmm. all the schools to do better. You've got a school with um, 1,000 kids, and uh, let's say that uh, 90% of their kids are meeting state standards, so they're considered one of the best school districts in, in the state. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at it year after year after year after year, it's still only it's 90% of the kids meeting state standards. It doesn't change very much. It might go to 91. It might drop to 89. It might go to 82, then back to 91. But that school district has a problem. They got 10% of their kids year after year after year not making it. And they're right. doing nothing about it because everybody says they're one of the best schools in the whole state. And so they get honored and applauded and everything, everything's great. But it's not. They're failing 10% of their kids every year. Now, other school districts might be, you know, if you go to one of the uh, reservation schools here in Arizona, you might find that uh, 80% of the kids didn't meet standards. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, and so state, and what, kind of what you read in the introduction, our state tests do nothing to help them. They just discourage them year after year after year. So there's a huge gap. But my focus is saying, how do we set up a system so we honor people for getting better. So the school district says that 90% year after year after year should not be honored. They're not improving. They're still failing 10% every year. And they have the resources. That's a, that's a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that as, a big, as just as big a problem as the one that, that, uh, has only, that only has 20% of their kids meeting state standards. They're not improving either because it's a ranking system and we make sure they don't. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, and I wasn't in the system that long. I only taught a year, and it was second grade. I loved it; it was great. Uh, so for that first, so please forgive me. <laughs> the first okay. half of the year, I, you know, one of the elder older teachers kind of put their arm around me and told me about, you know, to keep them quiet. I'm like, I can't keep these kids quiet, right? So they're like, hey, if you incentivize them with like a snack if they complete their work or to stay quiet or what have you. 
and it was through the roof. I, I, I thought that we actually had a, a pipeline to the dentist office with all the candy and oh. stuff that they got. But, but in all seriousness, kids, I think the human human nature, we need some in, in, um, incentivizing. Okay. So, so we, we do that. I didn't kids. get I didn't get to my third root cause, and you uh, just described it. Uh-huh. It's bribery. Okay. It's bribery. <laughs> okay. okay. So. I said uh, in, in my seminars, I will say to uh, the people in the audience, uh, okay, talk to the people next to you and come to an agreement. How many of these incentives, uh, which is the flight word or bribe, which is the real word, how many mm-hmm. do they receive per day in your school? And I get somewhere between three a day and 20 a day, somewhere mm-hmm. in between. But the most common is five. So then I say to people in the audience, okay, take out your cell phone, and, and there's, a, there's a, a calculator that comes with it. Enter five, or whatever number it is that you, that you agreed in your small group right there, and let's say it's five. So they enter five in. Okay, now there's typically 180 school days in a year, so multiply five times 180. Okay, now there's 13 years. Um, unless you've got a pre-kindergarten, that makes 14 years. So whatever it is in your school system, either multiply it by 13 or by 14, depending on how many years of school you offer, and multiply that and see how many incentives the kids receive in school uh, through their education. Mm-hmm. Well, if, it's, if there's no pre-K and only, there's a kindergarten, it's 13 years, and it's five, you come up with 10,700 incentives or bribes that the kids receive. Mm-hmm. So I say, huh, are the 10,000 bribes that kids are receiving, is it working? Is it helping kids learn more? Uh, and I'll say, no, it's not working. Uh, not working. Okay? So what do you replace bribes with? Yeah. And what we replace them with is the term is called all-time best, the ATB, the schools where I work. ATB is the most common phrase in the school. It stands for, and it means I did better than I've ever done before. And we honor the kids when they do better than they've done before. Um, it's a thank you. It's not, nothing big. We don't give them anything. It, it's just great. I can't believe it. You, this is the fifth time this year you've done better than you ever did before. Wow, you're getting smart. And then I told you we add up the total for the whole class. Mm. Well, every time the class has an all-time best, the kids get to celebrate. It's not, we, don't give them, we don't give them things. We create memories. Mm-hmm. And so I've got a picture of a, of a class here in Arizona. Uh, they are a third grade class, and they are doing the wave. So when the, when, the, when the class has an all-time best, the teacher puts on band music from a high school football, from a, you know, I mean a university uh, football game, puts on the band music, the kids get in the circle, and they do the wave. That's their celebration. It's a team thing. It's every kid in the room. It's not, if you do this, then you get to go to the ice cream party. But if you don't, you don't get to go to the ice cream party. No, we don't do that. Mm. We add up the total of the whole class, and you get to celebrate. And here's Mm. here's the tearjerker. I've heard this so many times from teachers. Here's a kid that's struggling in the room. And the kid doesn't do as well as lots of other people in the room. But on the, the weekly assessment, um, the kid got two questions right, and, 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 and the class had more right than ever before. And the, and the kid jumps up and said, does a chest pump and says, it was me. 
It was mm-hmm. me. Because of my two, I put us over the top, and we all get to celebrate. Mm-hmm. We know that from athletics. A kid's a mediocre athlete sitting on the bench for the basketball game. The coach puts the kid in, and the other team knows the kid's not a very good player, so they foul him on purpose. And he makes a free throw. And the team, and the team wins by one point. Does the kid hang his head and say, woe was me, I only got one point? No. He says, it was me. It was me, guys. It was my point. We, I won the game. It was my point. Mm-hmm. That's what happens in classrooms all the time. And so that's data for joy. We replace the bribes with celebrations of doing better than you've ever done before. Now, let's stay there for a second with the same analogy in the achieving the all-time best, because uh, your, your book is The Perfect School. And I'm thinking of, and maybe not so much a bribery anymore, but <laughs> okay. I'm thinking of The Perfect State, right? Because fortunately or unfortunately, for 2020, we've seen top-down, there's some states that are faring better, some states that are getting access to uh, medical items, or let's just say items, than other states. And, it, and I'm just thinking of people that are, there's a huge migrations that are happening with people losing their job and they're relocating. And usually when you relocate, you, there's apps now that tell you the best schools. I mean, in a perfect world, yeah. a perfect school, it would be a state. Oh, I'm going to this state because no matter what school I'm going to, it's uniform top down. And how could we get that school that's used to scoring that one point to improve or get the other schools to lift up that one school that's only scoring one point. Is that possible? Yes, it's possible. Um, I've talked with state leaders who have that desire. They haven't always convinced the journalists of their dream because every year the journalists put out an article, which is a ranking article, Mm-hmm. Of the best schools to the worst schools. Right. Yeah. And so it turns out that the um, journalism graduate that's two years out of college uh, has never taught school, sometimes has more power over the system than the educator who's been in education for 40 years is now the state leader. Mm-hmm. It, um, it's a difficult one because it's, it's a part of the culture that we rank people based on raw score not on did they improve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but yes, it would be it would be the ideal. Now, now since the the book title you mentioned, how to create a perfect school, I needed to find perfect for you. Okay. Okay. Here, and, and here's the definition. Children start school with with all the motivation they need. It's internal intrinsic motivation. They have all they need for life when they start kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So a perfect school is one that maintains that love of learning for the next 12 years. Right now, by the time we get to ninth grade, two-thirds of the kids don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, So it makes it really hard for teachers to get the learning in their heads that they're accountable for putting, you know, helping them learn when two-thirds of them don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. But it's not true in kindergarten. Uh, they all, almost all want to be there, and they love it. Mm-hmm. We have, and so the, when, in teacher education, 
Teachers are told how to motivate the kids to learn. That's terrible advice. Our job is not to motivate them to learn. They come into the system already motivated. Our job is to maintain the enthusiasm that they brought with them. That's a different mindset on motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When I'm speaking, I, I don't want anybody ever to introduce me to an audience and say, here's Lee Jenkins, a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. I'm not a motivational speaker. Um, I don't know. If, if I look at a crowd of 500 teachers, um, I don't know how to motivate the teacher who's demotivated. Okay? I don't know how to do that. There's a few, not many. When I surveyed teachers, they said it's about 4%. I don't know how to motivate that 4%. And secondly, so the 96% that are already motivated, when they think that the superintendent brought somebody in to motivate them, that demotivates them. Right, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. How could the superintendent think we need to be motivated? We're already motivated. We need help. We need, we need things to help us do better, but we don't need to be motivated. We're already motivated. And you brought in a speaker to motivate us. That demotivates me when you think I need to be motivated. Okay? You with on that? Okay? Right. So, yeah. I want so, to ask you about this conference. So not per, in this particular conference, but one thing that I, that I found funny as a former educator is sitting in these conferences and, like you said, to be motivated or for whatever reason – and then, you know, ultimately people need to get up, walk around, and they start talking, even when the speaker is speaking sometimes. And so in class, you're, I'm laughing because we all, as adults, we say, do as I say, not as I do. And in some of these classrooms, these kids are supposed to be quiet for hours on end. So yeah. how can you when you're a first grader and in some of these schools, they've taken out recess? Right? You can't even yeah. let your hair down. So is it important to break I've been, I've been there. Right? Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Well, actually, I was in a school, an elementary school, where they took out recess, and, and I was very frustrated, so I started checking what, what is going on. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in my experience uh, in elementary schools, both as an administrator and as a teacher, uh, the, the, we, when I was a, again, when I was a teacher, elementary, we had a 15-minute recess in the morning, and we had a 30-minute lunch. Mm-hmm. Okay? The union in that particular district, which was run by high school teachers, they had in their contract, and they would not budge, that teachers had 45 minutes for lunch. Mm-hmm. So that took away the 15-minute recess at the elementary school. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. the state mm-hmm. tells you how many minutes of instruction. You're supposed right. to have. So right. it was, it was, there was the root cause. They couldn't come to an agreement with the superintendent. The teachers union and the superintendent couldn't come to an agreement for the, te- for the kids to have a recess in the morning. Huh. Um, so it was different than what I thought. It wasn't done sure. for um, uh, more, time, more time grinding away in the books. It, that wasn't the reason. So anyway, I'm just sharing that. If you don't dig down and find out what the root cause is, you end up thinking, blaming somebody for taking away recess, which was not a good idea. Right. Wow. Is there an association? Because, you know, even again, 2020, to be topical, uh, there, there has been the encouragement to at least get some fresh air and get out. And for the most part, 
well, at least at the beginning, like March, April, people were scared to leave their homes. Even the gyms were closed. But it seems like I'll use myself as an example. If I don't exercise, it do, I don't get away from the laptop. And when I don't get away from the laptop, it's not giving me that time to create outside of what's immediately in front of me. And I'm just uh-huh. wondering if you were able to find a connection between uh, exercise and learning. Lots and lots of people have written on that. And that's not my expertise, so I don't really want to comment on that. But many, many people have written on that. Um, and, 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 and what I've read is pretty conclusive, that there mm-hmm. is a connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you researched 301 classrooms. And let's just say you worked at a, the elementary level, and it was a perfect school, striking success. But at middle school and high school, they didn't have it. So how do you keep that momentum going if they're not going to have that love of learning or that environment that's not embracing them like yeah. their previous school find, had it? Okay. The, the kids in the middle and the high school enjoy uh, their all-time best as much as elementary kids. Mm-hmm. Um, on my video, uh, excuse me, on my website, there's a video. It's, it's, um, the website is lbelj.com, but there's the video there is from the middle school, seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And when the kids have their personal best, and this is prior to COVID, of course, when the video was done. But what do the, what do the middle school kids do because they have their, own, their personal best? They go up and write their name on the whiteboard and they high ten the teacher. Hmm. That's it. Hmm. They love it. Hmm. Just before schools got closed down in March, three high school kids came to this middle school class because that, middle, that teacher was their teacher when they were in middle school. And they, wanted, and they got out, they had a minimum day, the high school did. They got out early, and the, and the middle school was still in, in session. So they went to visit their former middle school teacher. Mm-hmm. So they go in, and school's still in session, and, 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 the, and the kids look on the wall, and they see all the graphs, which is adding up the total for the class and, you know, other things we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, you're still doing the L to J process. Hmm. And the teacher, Alan Colpster's name, he's also mentioned in the book. He said, yes, I'm still doing L to J. And then what did these high school kids say on an afternoon off? Can we take another quiz? Hmm. <laughs> because the quiz is how you prove you're getting smarter. Hmm. Okay? Hmm. So he said to his middle school kids, do you mind if we have an extra quiz? These high school kids want to take a quiz. They said, no, it's okay. So the three high school kids sat down. In the middle school, and he gave them a history quiz, like they had just one of the normal quizzes. It's, and by the way, our quizzes are not by over chapters. They're a random sample from the whole year. Okay. So anyway, they took a quiz. What did they do? They, went, they all three went up and wrote their name on the whiteboard and high tend the teacher. <laughs> High school, okay? It's not complicated. Mm. And in, um, in, in high school, the, the, the celebrations are obviously different. Um, mm-hmm. I guess one of the ones that's most interesting is the, kids, the teachers asking the kids how we could celebrate all-time best in our Algebra two class. And, they, and what the kids landed on, they said was, okay, every time our class has an all-time best, then all of us in the class 
we're going to empty change in our pocket and put it in a bucket. <laughs> and so then that's what they did. It was great fun. They did, oh, great. We had an all-time best. They reached in our pocket, take the change, and put it in the bucket. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the year, they gave $87 to the local Humane Society. Nice. So, nice. see, we don't think that. We think, we think bribery in our culture. Oh, we have to give the kids ice cream to, you know, to do it. Well, they're 11th graders. They don't care about the ice cream. Whatever, you know. No. Mm-hmm. It's that celebration. We did better than we've done before. Look at all those million-dollar athletes paid a million a year minimum. And what do they do when they win the game? They celebrate, right? Mm-hmm. The coach doesn't say, okay, we won today. Here's an, extra th- here's, a, here's an extra pile of money for you. No, they celebrate. And, yeah, that's what the kids like. They like to celebrate. Let me ask you a, a continuity question. So either, would you describe as a perfect part of, I guess, just childhood, where you kind of go, you get older and you feel nostalgic about your second grade teacher and you go visit that person. And I'm sure people listening are remembering, like for me, I'm thinking of my second grade teacher. But today with online, is there a way to encourage like a continuity where the, let's say the segment of those middle schoolers that are in that high school that's missing what they had to motivate them can get together online at least so there are, still getting what they're missing from, from middle school? I'm not the one to ask because I don't know how to do it. There okay. may be people that know how, mm-hmm. but um, I, I, my, my, my opinion on that is that you could, if there were times during the year when you did meet as a class with the teacher, so you mm-hmm. knew each other, personally, and you knew the teacher personally, and that might tie the, the uh, online learning together more. Mm-hmm. I think this year for online is harder than last year. Yeah. Because last year, it, it was with a the teacher they already knew that was continuing. And this year, they're starting off with somebody that's a stranger. Right. Hmm. You know, uh, that also and, that brings up my next point, yeah. Lee, because – here in the States, right, <laughs> no more teachers, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks or whatever that song was, and you run away for three months, and when you come back to school in the fall, it takes a quarter just to remember. So in your perfect school, would that be a year-round school? How do you keep that going? No, when no the- I, I, I was a principal of a year-round school, so okay. I don't believe that the calendar is the secret to our success. Mm. I don't believe it. Uh, the problem is they don't remember it. We blame it on summer. Oh, the kids forgot this all the summer. No, they didn't forget it over the summer. They didn't remember it past the weekend. Mm-hmm. But we blame it on summer. But it's not summer. They didn't remember it. Over the, it's, they, they had permission to forget. Um, I, the, Alan Culp, the seventh grade class that I was in, mm-hmm. um, I, I went... I was in there and I said, okay, I've been talking to your eighth grade teacher next door, and I think she's going to do the same LTJ quizzes next year. But I'm not sure. Um, now, you've been taking, you have 100 concepts to learn, key concepts to learn in history this year, 
and every week you get a quiz on 10 of the 100 at random. The teacher chooses 10 at random. You know that because it's on, the, it's on a computer program that chooses them at random, and those are your questions. And, of course, you miss a whole bunch in the beginning of the year, so you have an L curve in the middle of the year, at the beginning of the year, and then you have a bell curve in, in the middle of the year, and then you're trying to get to a J curve by the end because you, you remember it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so your eighth grade teacher is considering doing this. Now, she's got a choice. She's been talking to your, uh, Mr. Culp, your, your seventh grade teacher, and, and so she could do the same thing and give 100 key historical facts for um, eighth grade and give you and quiz you on 10 each. Uh, it's almost every week. Quiz you on 10 at random from, from the whole year each week. Or she could give you a 12-item quiz each week, and it would be 10 questions coming from uh, eighth grade. And two would be she just gets Mr. Culp's seventh grade, and she just asks you two of his questions, just like you had this year, just two, mm-hmm. two of them, mm-hmm. and, and said, does this vote? Do you want me to advise your eighth, the eighth grade teacher next year when you're there to give you 10 questions from eighth grade, or do you want 12, which includes two seventh grade? Every hand went up and said, we want, we want to have two seventh grade questions. Mm-hmm. You don't think that, but no, they, they, they feel smart. They want to read. They, and so when I talked to her the next year, and I said, she said, I don't think any, any one kid that was here last year missed any of those two questions. Hmm. They didn't forget it over the summer. They they knew from the whole system was I have to put this into my long term memory because I never know what's coming up at random. Hmm. I don't know what's coming. It's not hmm. like a chapter test that I can go home and study on Thursday night. No, I've got the list for the whole year. He, Mr. Cope gave me the list for the whole year. I've got it, but I can't cram all hundred. That's too much. <laughs> right. So, so I, I'm just going to have to learn it. Right. Learn choice, but just learn it. And they remember it because they, they know they have to put it in their long-term memory. They know that. Sure. Now, from that example from the seventh-grade teacher to the eighth-grade teacher, my question is, what is the tipping point for the perfect school that it becomes standard? Does it have to be the continuity to three grades, four, you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth? Have, is there a tipping point where this can start to be a structural format for teaching? Um, I have never seen it become a structural format without uh, a strong commitment from the school superintendent. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even the principal, it's difficult for the principal to do. It's, it's not, and, and there's some very, very dedicated principals that are doing wonderfully with what I teach. The problem is that the superintendent has a new idea, and that new idea takes time and energy and money, and so then other things that were done can fade away. So I've never seen it unless the school superintendent is in the workshops, understands it, is going around uh, honoring kids, honoring schools, because we can't, it's not only the, there's not only a, a total for each, and there's not only how each kid's doing and a total on the wall for how the class is doing, down by the office, there's a total for how the whole school's doing. Right. And you add, it, you add up the totals from every classroom, a simple addition, add it up. Hmm. And, and we started talking about state assessment. Addition would work. Mm-hmm. But you can't because... The states um, change the they change the test every five years. 
so you just finally get so you understand that what the standards are and what's expected, and then they change every five years. Right. Um, there's no there's no constant. Uh, so, um, but yeah, it takes it takes really good leadership from the top for it to become the way things are done. So what I'm hearing, Lee, is if I was in you know elementary school and I, and I learned the LTJ process and then. I used that in high school, and I became older, and I started having my own kids. You're talking about voting on the local level to reinforce the superintendents that are going to use these breakthrough ways to become a perfect school. That's correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It takes a school board that understands because, I mean, think about it. There are people in every town who are pressuring their kids to cram, 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 get good grades and get scholarships. Mm-hmm. Well, when you take away cramming as a possibility, you have to actually have to learn it. Mm-hmm. You have some people that get upset. They're not interested in learning. They're interested in that scholarship. Right. So, I've, I've seen it. yeah, it, it, takes, it takes everybody. But it's... it's, 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 it's it is really deep within our culture. We use data for harm, not for joy. Mm-hmm. We bribe instead of celebrating, um, and and we give. And, we, and you don't have to learn it; you just have to cram it for the test. I want to ask you about a trend that um, I have to give a shout out to my little. I, I did a ten-year um, commitment, if you will, and I, I don't think it stopped. But from the Big Brother Big Sister program, it stopped once they graduated. And one thing that we saw speaking with some other parents was a lot of the seniors at this school, they had gone to private, neighboring private schools their whole uh, matriculation through school, except for senior year. And mm-hmm. they had a leg up on the public school kids, and as a result, they got a lion's share of the scholarships. So... You know, what's your take on that strategy that's happening in these schools where (laughs) you may think you're coasting when you're a junior and then you're going to get your clock cleaned from your neighbor across town that's now at your school? I've not heard of that before. Oh, yeah. Um, Okay, that shows shows a lack of my – I'm not surprised. yeah, not surprised. <laughs> I, uh, Let me ask you the okay. other side of that. Yeah. So the other side of that is, and this was on 60 Minutes not too long ago. So, um, and shout out to Malcolm Gladwell, because uh, you know that book, The Outliers, right. talking about the 2009. Uh-huh. So with regard to school, uh, they use the example of uh, Canada. And in Canada, the boy, school starts, kindergarten starts at five years old. So what was happening with the hockey teams is the parents waited until they were six years old. And then that way they kind of grew, not, you know, they're not hulks or anything like that, but they're bigger than they are than they are in fifth grade. As a result, their confidence was through the roof and all that, and they became better players because of that. And when 60 Minutes talked about it, they said from an education standpoint, if the boys started a year later, they would fare better in school. And then that when we're talking about disparities, 
they were saying that, well, parents that could afford to do that can do it. But if you're, you yeah. get family leave for like two weeks or something, you're right back at school. Your, your kids, yeah. you're, you're back at work. Your kid's suffering. What's your take on that? Well, I know that it's done a lot. And, and it's for athletics. I've not heard about this for the academics, but it's for all those reasons. Um, all, and, and, I, and I guess a lot of times it works, particularly if the student is a good athlete and, it, and they end up being successful for it. But there are a number of, ninth, a number of kids that for the parents did this uh, for, the, for the best of intentions. In fact, we have close friends who did that. And when their son was a senior, he looked around and there were no other 19-year-old seniors. Mm-hmm. And he had a girlfriend who was 19. And his girlfriend was going to community college. Mm. And he was 19, supposed to go to his senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. So I just want parents to think that, yes, you may redshirt them for a year, but you might have a huge problem when your, your son or daughter doesn't want to be a 19-year-old senior. Mm. Yeah. And, and we don't think that way always. We don't look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And if they're the 19-year-old senior getting the hockey scholarship for college, then it turned out okay. Right. But if at 14 he says, I hate hockey, you still got a 19-year-old senior who doesn't understand why they can't be in college. (laughs) Yeah. I'm laughing too hard at that. We had a family member that did um, volleyball until like 14. I mean, she was six. You know, and we were just like, yeah, she's going to college for a while. I don't like it anymore. I mean, it's <laughs> for parents that yeah. hear that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so, so I had cut you off earlier about you were going through your list for the perfect school. And I wanted well, to Well, I, re- I think, no, I, let me just tell you the outline of the book. Okay. Okay. The first part is what is perfect, and it's we keep our intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. And then how do you measure intrinsic motivation? He said, well, what is it? Well, intrinsic motivation is a part of is two things. It's, it's uh, the joy we get and, and, the, and the effort we put. It's a, it's a combination of joy and effort. Mm-hmm. John Hattie, a famous Australian educator, gave us the triplets of uh, uh, joy, uh, skill, will, and thrill. So if the the skill is what we want them to learn, but the will and the thrill is what brings it about. And if they lose their will to work hard and they, learn, and they lose their thrill from the learning, then that goes down. So we define intrinsic and how to measure it. The second part is what did we inherit that's causing kids to lose their intrinsic motivation, and those are the three things we talked about. The yeah. third part are the replacements. What can you yeah. do so kids keep their will? What can you do so they keep their thrill and we talked about that. That's the celebrations, the joy from doing better than you've ever done before, being a part of a team, helping a team succeed. And the last part is instruction. It's polishing perfect. And, and we do that uh, through pattern, giving kids the pattern so they can see what's going on, and choices. So I'll give you one example from that third part of the book. Um, I, I learned this from a high school teacher in West Virginia. But every, when he gave an assignment, he said to his students, Here's what, I, here's what you have to prove to me you've learned. Here's three ways you can prove to me you learned it. But 
if you've got another idea how you can prove to me you learned it, come talk to me. Hmm. So uh, he said his favorite example was an, an 11th grader in, in U.S. history did, did all of her assignments, or almost all, for a whole year in U.S. history with political cartoons. Mm-hmm. She proved to the cartoons she understood the history. I had a teacher, I was sharing this with a, a group of teachers, and a teacher came up break and said, you know, if I'd have had that option in high school, I would have done so well in high school. Mm-hmm. Because all I cared about in high school was theater. I would have connected every assignment every teacher gave to theater. I would have figured it out. <laughs> but as it was, they, they said, here's, here's what you have to learn, and here's how you're going to prove it. No choices. Right. So one of the ways that we polish perfect is by giving kids choices. It can start in kindergarten and first grade with things, simple things like, what word would you like to learn to read today? I mean, we, we give them these stupid books to learn to read in first grade. The, the fat cat sat on the mat with the rat or something, you know, it, it, it's phonetic, it all rhymes, but the kids don't care about the fat cat sitting on the rat or on the mat. Mm-hmm. But if you say, what word do you want to learn to read today? And the kid says Lamborghini. The teacher says, oh my goodness, how do you spell that? Well, let's get the phone out and we'll figure it out and there's, there's your word today. And guess what? Mm-hmm. All the phonics is included in the words kids ask for. It's all there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it can, at any grade, when you give kids choices, you you are polishing perfect. Mm. Now, at the beginning, we were talking about the disparity in the school test and uh, just school overall, depending on funding and what have you. Have you ever looked at, you were talking about the team effort with some of the students. Has there been a team effort type outreach for the schools that don't have these, like let's say a school is underfunded and they want to have it and there's probably a small interest into the LTJ, is there a way to partner maybe on the weekend with one of the schools that are employing your strategies? I don't think so. I, it, it may be. Maybe. I mean, um, it spreads. I got a call from a North Carolina teacher uh, a couple of weeks ago and I said, and I looked on the map where she was because I've worked in North Carolina, but not where she is. How, how did this happen? Oh, I used to work in Oklahoma, and I heard you speak then. Mm-hmm. I was using your process in Oklahoma, and I moved. So, mm-hmm. yes, but pretty much people need to have direct help themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm so, thinking from. Uh, uh, but it is, but it is a system problem. It's not mm-hmm. a people problem. Uh, back to Deming, I mentioned earlier, he said, when things go wrong, we just need to remember that 96% of the time it's caused by the way we do things. Mm. And 4% of the time it's caused by people just messing up. Mm. He then said, if everybody in, your, everybody in your organization did their very, very best, almost our, all of our problems would still be there. Because there's a system. Mm-hmm. And the system from the state level ranks the schools. So if every teacher in every school and every principal in every school did their very, very best, when the year's over, they're going to rank the schools top to bottom. And they're going to discourage the schools who most need help. Mm-hmm. 
So then the next year, not as many teachers are going to do their best because they know they can't win. Mm. It, it, it's, it, they're, they're stuck. They can't, they can't do anything about it. Right. I've, got kid, I've got kids that are from poverty backgrounds. No matter what I do, it's going to come out in the newspaper that we're a terrible school, and, I'm a, and consequently, I'm going to stay in the newspaper. I'm a terrible teacher. Mm-hmm. So why try my best? They're making a difference. Mm. Well, there, there are strength in numbers, especially this year. We're seeing a, uh, some inklings of some changes. And for people listening to the podcast that probably never heard of your process and they want to learn more so you can speak to their administrators so they don't continue this structure that's failing our kids ultimately, how could they get in touch with you? I believe you have social media in addition to your site as well. Yeah, I, the, the email is the easiest. It's Lee at, um, and it's six letters, L, the letter L, the first letter of my name, Lee, the word bell, as ring the bell, and the letter J, Lee at LBellJ.com. Okay. Now, it's really not, a, the L to J is not about my name. It's the, it's the histogram going from the L curve to the bell curve in the middle of the year to the J curve. But Love it. That's the easiest, lbellj.com, lee at lbellj.com. Very nice, very nice. Well, is there any question that I forgot to ask you that you'd like to get across for I, I, I the think audience? I think, I think you've done really well. If, Thank uh, you. If, if, and I hope that people who are frustrated with education don't blame the teachers, don't blame the administrators. There is a system there that's working against their best efforts that can be fixed. It can be. Mm-hmm. It's definitely encouraging. And we have people like you that are out there fighting the fight for sure. So with okay. that, Thank you. you have been tuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza Lee. It was a pleasure. Please keep us in mind when you have more things coming down. And we'd love to hear how this continues on. Well, I can tell you that I am working now on a project. The books are on Amazon. Because that loss of intrinsic motivation most often occurs, uh, it starts with the reading programs. Mm-hmm. And so I am, I've had this desire for years. Things have slowed down, so I'm doing it. And I am publishing books that are unique in the market for early readers as they learn to read. They are either rewrites of Bible stories or rewrites of Aesop fables. Mm-hmm. And those are there. Um, on Amazon, if you were to look up Lee Jenkins on Amazon, there's, there's, there's a number of authors with the name Lee Jenkins. But if you did that, you would find the books. Um, the first one uh, is A Day with Jesus, the story of Zacchaeus. The mm-hmm. second one is A Week with Joshua. The third one, which will be out next month, is An Evening with Daniel, the Lion's Den Theater. And the mm-hmm. first Aesop book is Who's Afraid of a Lion? Aesop's Bully Fable. So anyway, they're there. So maybe we talk more about that and reading and how we keep that love of reading and don't make them hate reading uh, early on. I had a first grade, a teacher told me that a first grader said to a new kid to their school, first grade said, welcome to reading hell. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, we don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want that. Lee, it was a pleasure, man. Let's definitely stay in touch. Okay, Hamza, appreciate it. Bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye.